This is the day that the Lord has made, and we will rejoice, and we are glad in it. If you agree with that, say amen. amen. I'm excited uh, once again to be able to stand before you guys, the people of God, to crack open the word of God. But I would be a fool to not say thank you to some people uh, who allow me to do that. I want to first extend a thank you to the elders of our church. Uh, amen. Amen. I don't take it lightly while some be like, oh, well, he's just getting up to preach. But, but elders, they, they guard us to make sure people don't get up and spew nonsense. And so when pastors extend the opportunity for me to be able to break open the word of God, I don't take it lightly. And so I say thank you to you men here. Then I got to give a special thanks to Pastor E, who, uh, you know, for two years has sat and listened to me ask stupid questions, dumb questions, really dumb questions. And yet he showed grace and answered them all. And, uh, and, and it's really been graceful, graceful with this guy here. And so I'm thankful for him as well. Last but not least, I want to thank my wife, Kelly. She's sitting right there in front of me. And, uh, you know, she's my better three-fourths. And I have better three-fourths, you know. She be leading your boy to Jesus. No, I'm kidding. So I'm thankful for you, boo. Uh, it's exciting to be here with you. And before I begin, I wanted to just kind of give a kind of a snapshot of some things that the Lord has been doing with us. Uh, I, I just want to say your prayers, all of your prayers have been felt. And uh, we've sensed them and we've seen God answer prayers. One in particular, I couldn't wait to have the opportunity to tell you guys again. Uh, but I remember about a month ago, I was able to sit down with two Muslim guys and share the gospel with them and to be able to sit down and go over a meal and to get them to go into the scriptures. We walked through Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Now, for most of y'all, that's like, you know, nighttime sleep for you. By the time you get to seventh day and God rested, you resting. And, uh, but it was interesting to see as we opened up the scriptures and talked through one, two, and three, and for them to kind of interact with the text and their eyes just open and, and to see God really working on their hearts. You know, that ain't none of my brilliance. That ain't none of any you know, none of that. It ain't got nothing to do with what I thought I had, uh, but, but it's purely from the Lord, and it's purely to see him answer prayers, and, uh, and so I'm grateful for that, that opportunity, and just wanted to share that with you guys to even see how God is just opening the doors for people to hear the gospel. Now, er, not every conversation don't go that way. You know, there are some that go terribly bad, and, and there are some where they be like, I ain't listening to a word you're saying, but, uh, but it's grateful to see the Lord work. Amen? Amen. If you have your Bibles, I would like for you to open up to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5, and we can stand up. We're actually going to read from verses 11 and following, really down to 20, 21. Uh, and let's read together. It says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. What we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake 
God died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And I'm just going to throw 21 in here. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want you to turn to the person next to you and help me announce this topic. Say, neighbor. neighbor. We're going to talk about, about the, internal the internal motivations of the one God uses. You may be seated. Let's go before the Lord. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity, Lord, to, to, to share in your word today. Lord, to hear what it is that you're speaking to your people. Uh, and I pray, Lord, my heart's desire, my earnest prayer, Lord God, is that you receive glory. Uh, that at the end of the day, uh, when seats are taken and cars have driven off, Lord, that you will smile. That you would say that your name was lifted up and attention was drawn to Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would give me clarity, that you would speak through me to your people, uh, that we would apply what you're saying to us from your word to our lives and be obedient to what it is you're saying. And we pray, Lord God, that you would uh, hide me behind the cross. Let me decrease that you might increase. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Our culture uh, knows how to venerate people, doesn't it? If you grew up like me, I grew up on the south side of Chicago, and the church that I grew up in prior to attending the one that I left to come here, I grew up in a very historic uh, black Baptist church on the south side of the city. In fact, the church that I went to is the church that Thomas Dorsey was the worship leader. Now, some of y'all are saying, who is Thomas Dorsey? I, I, I call you to Google him, look him up, but he is the father, the grandfather of gospel music. Wrote such songs as Precious Lord, Take My Hand. See, some of y'all, that didn't went over your head there, but your grandmama didn't know about that song. <laughs> Precious Lord, Take My Hand. But while sitting in this church on any given Sunday, they didn't have no air conditioning because the building was old. And one thing that this church had, uh, that many churches like this across America had, they had a system called paper fans. <laughs> when you picked up these paper fans, you'd be hard-pressed to not find two things on the back of a paper fan. You would probably see advertisement for a funeral home. To see, you know, everybody's going to die, so you're going to see them representing a funeral home where they can funeralize you and your mom and them after you have expired. <laughs> but then you flip over to the front of it, you will see this person hands down all the time, more than you will see even Jesus, it's sad to say it, but you will see this man none other than Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In fact, if you're like my grandmother and them, if you went to their, their friends' houses, you'd see three people on the wall, always three people. You would see Jesus. Now, you would see the white Jesus. You saw the black one with dreadlocks. You know the one you get from the corner store or from the, from the beauty supply house, that Jesus. 
You also saw another man by the name of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Some of y'all know this. It's bringing back memories even now. And sure enough, you saw that third man, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Now, I was raised by my mother, and she was a proud black woman, and she wanted me to know my black history. That's an art I think is lost in our culture today. But my mother made sure I knew who Dr. King was. Remember growing up hearing about him and his death on April 4th, 1968, and hearing some of the great things that he's done. But if you leave it to secular humanism or people who just want to talk about the good things we can do, they'd make you think that what motivated Dr. Martin Luther King was Mahatma Gandhi. I'm sure you've read that in your history books that said that Dr. King was motivated for nonviolence by Mahatma Gandhi. Wasn't until I was an adult that I picked up a book that he actually wrote called uh, 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 Strength to Love. And I remember reading this book and being blown away by the fact that he said, people ask me, why do I risk my life daily? Why do I see this big task in front of me and every day roll out the bed to pursue it? Why is it that I can stand up and call people to accountability even when the lives of my wives and children are threatened on a daily basis? Wish you heard him talk about the bomb threats that they gave to his house and how he was stabbed in the chest and how someone threw a rock at him. He says, what in the world will make me continue on loving people that show me no love? He says, the inward motivation for me was the cross of Christ. I heard Jesus on the cross say, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Martin Luther King would say that it was that that motivated him. It was that that kept him moving towards the goal that he ultimately died for, the internal motivation of one God used. Yes, I said it. I I actually believe that God raised him up to use him in that time. The inward motivation of the one God uses. Beloved, God desires to use you. Not necessarily like Dr. King, but, but God did not save you for nothing. I see you're going to make me work here. Let me give you some Bible on that. Exodus chapter 19, God says to the people through Moses, he says, You saw my power and how I saved you so that you can become a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Peter would later pick that back up in 1 Peter, and he would say all these things are true so that you might proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Listen here, God has saved you for a reason. It wasn't just so you can know some good songs. It wasn't merely so you can be able to get your prayer life in check and know some good memory verses. All these things are great, but God has called you for a task that every believer has been written down for, and that is to proclaim the excellencies of God to a world that needs to hear them. Let me me see if I can paint this for Philly for you. You know the statistic, 1.5 million people in this city, 1.38 million of that group are not in church as we speak. Now I see some of you saying, well, that means nothing because I didn't go to church last month. Let's frame it this way. 1.5 million people, 1.38 million of them are on their way to hell right now. Let me see if I can paint it this way here. If a catastrophic event happened in the city limits of Philadelphia, wiped out the entire population, 90% of the population, hell will be the very next place they open their mouth to breathe. Take that picture there. That means the neighbor that you live next to, 
the one that you ride on the train next to on your way to work, the one that the co-worker you can't stand, the boss that you don't like, some of your kids, your mother, your father, these are people that, that, that God is calling us as his people to speak to. There is a task that is bigger than us that God is saying, my people who are called by my name, I want you to represent me in all aspects of your life. It's a sad thing to say when the average Christian has not shared their faith not one time in the last year. That's not an uncommon statistic for American or westernized Christians. But God has given us this task. But in order for us to do this, there has to be some internal motivation. There can't be external motivation solely. Good sermon can't move you. A book should not just move you. But there have to be some things that are working in your heart that cause you to move rightly towards people to share the gospel with them. So I think that this, ta- this text is tailored to show us that as we are used by God to reach people, our motives have to be pointed towards him. Let's walk through this here. This second book of Corinthians here, we've been going through 1 Corinthians for 16 years now. And we know, that wasn't a slight pastor E. I love expository preaching, Doc. I like going through it. <laughs> That's a good thing when you can walk through a text for a long time to get the meaning of it. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. But you know from 1 Corinthians that the Corinthian church was a dysfunctional church. Let that give you courage, because some of y'all are discouraged now because you're a mess. I'm a mess, you're a mess, we're a mess. But that's why God gives us the Holy Ghost to clean us up. By the time Paul is writing this piece here, this 2 Corinthians, a lot of them issues have passed. He's now writing about something that's different from the first thing. The first thing was a threat that was coming from within, causing disunity, causing all type of dysfunction. It was a threat that was internal. But now he comes to speak about a threat that is external, that is coming from without. There were some dudes that started to show up and began to teach a different gospel. And I can hear the people saying, you're not right in your assessment of Jesus because Paul told us this. These super apostles, as Paul would later call them, would begin to say, well, Paul is wrong because he himself is not an apostle. So Paul begins to craft this letter to the church at Corinth, the church that he founded, to say, listen, I'm going to defend my apostolic ship. I know that's a word I made up, but, but he says, I'm going to defend who I am in your eyes. That's a large majority of why this is reading, uh, written here. And so we come to the place where Paul now starts to talk about his motivations in dealing with them. And I think the first point that arises from this text, and that's this, accountability to Jesus Christ motivates. How do I get that? Amen. Paul says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Now, in order to understand what this knowing or the fear of the Lord is, you have to understand why therefore is there. Paul says, I understand the fear of the Lord in light of verse 9 and 10. 9 and 10 says, whether I'm at home or in my body, my aim is to please him. Why? For we must all be appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or whether evil. Paul says, I have a right understanding of Jesus Christ. He's not just my homeboy. He's not just my friend, but he is the one that I am accountable to. 
He says, he is the one that I will stand before. Well, not just I will stand before, but every person will be marched before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this isn't saying that, that you believer, your sins have not been paid for by him because they have. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, you have relationship with the God that you could not reach. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, your sins have been paid for. What is Paul talking about then? Paul is saying, I understand that since I am a believer, I will stand before Jesus Christ one day and give an account for what I did with the blood that he shed. He says every person will be marched before the judgment seat of Christ and your deeds will be put before you. And you will give an account for every word, every motive, every action you did or did not do. Paul says, because of this, the fear of the Lord. I'm not necessarily terrified or scared and running, but, but the awe and the respect that I have for Jesus, he says, understanding this, it's not just something that I read about in the Inquirer. It's not just something I got off philly.com. He says, I am adequately acquainted with the fear of the Lord. He says, I understand that I will appear before the master of all, the alpha and the omega, and I will give an account for everything that he saw me do and not do. He says, he says understanding the fear of the Lord, if, if more Christians would take a moment to understand the fear of the Lord, I submit to you that your life might be different. You might think twice about cussing that person out next time. You might think twice about not sharing the gospel with someone else because you will stand before Jesus. I like what he says in 1 Corinthians 3 where he talks about this same thing, saying that our work will be tried in fire. The only thing that lasts, like gold, is what was done for Jesus. It's going to be some salty Christians on that day when they stand there realizing they have given their lives to a lot of things. Some of us have donated ourselves to the pursuit of knowledge and education. And that's not bad because if you don't have education, you can't read the Bible. Some of us have pursued relationships that were for nothing. And, and we will stand before God and everything that we did apart from Christ will burn and be nothing. And rewards will be dished out accordingly. Paul says, because I understand this, we persuade others. What is he persuading others in? Well, obviously, he's persuading people in the gospel. Paul is constantly trying to convince people about the truth of what Jesus Christ has done. Well, I remember when I was in school growing up, you could tell I'm a talker. I do love to talk. I just like to talk. My wife would tell you I just talk. I just say stuff. Sometimes ain't got no reason to say nothing. I just be talking, just be all up on tangents, going round corners, just talking. And forgot why I even started the conversation. That's, that's me. I'm a talker. But as a talker, I took speech class. And I remember in speech class, you had different types of speeches. One speech that you would give is a persuasive speech. The point of that speech is not just to articulate information and give you fact. The point of that information was so that it, it would grip you to say, hey, I want to be convinced in what you believe in. Paul says, I'm doing that to people. Now, some of y'all say, well, I ain't never took no speech class. You convince. Let, let, you, 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 you persuade people. Let somebody walk in here with a Cowboys jersey on and tell you how much the Eagles suck and see won't your, your, your per art of persuasion pick back up. <laughs> Paul says, understanding the Lord I ain't even trying to call nobody out. Understanding the Lord. <laughs> I'm constantly trying to persuade people about the truthfulness of the gospel. That's a given. 
But then when you look even deeper into the context here, he persuades people about his character. That's what he's writing this about. He's, he's defending his apostleship. He's persuading people about the truth of who he is. He says, we persuade men. He says, but what we are, but what we are is known to God. In other words, he's saying, who I am. See, you don't, we as people don't have the ability. We have the ability to be very close booked with people. We do. We, we have the ability to hide behind the picture that we want people to see of us. We have the ability to let people think that all in our life is good when it's not. We have the ability to let people think that, that we are the holiest and holy when we're not. Paul says, I'm an open book to God, basically. And, and it's not something that he just said, I'm going to open it on Monday, close it on Tuesday, open it on Sunday, and close it again on Wednesday. The idea of this here is that he's been open all along. He says, who I am is known to God. He's saying, Corinthians, my motives have always been pure towards you. First Corinthians talks about when I could have taken money from you and it was my due, I did not because who I am is known to God. Then he says, I would have hoped, because he says, he says, I hope that it would be on your conscience here. He says, I hope it's known to your conscience also. He's saying, I wrote that first letter for your maturity. And I would have thought by now your maturity would have allowed you to have discernment to understand that I am who I say I am. Paul is defending himself against people who say that he's false. He says, who I am has been known by God, and I pray that it's known to you. That speaks to proximity. <laughs> See, if you want to be able to reach people, people got to know that you are who you are before God and that you're real with them. My mama used to say to me, real, recognize real. People can understand when your motives are wrong. Let, let, me, let me just drive it down the street a bit. Some of y'all, single people, y'all be talking to girls and trying to get them saved, not because you care about them, but because you want them to know Jesus Christ so you can make them in your image and they could be your spouse. Ladies, we, we're guilty of doing this. Well, y'all sometimes guilty of doing the same thing. Paul says, who I am is known to God. My motives have never been impure. Sometimes we want to share the gospel for impure motives. Sometimes we want people to know how many people I don't want to the Lord. I want 75,000 people to the Lord last year. I, 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 want, I, I convinced the atheist to come off his, 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 his argument to trust the truthfulness of the gospel. He says, my, my, my motives had nothing to do with that because who I was, my open bookness to God, God saw me and read me, and he can stand by and say that my motives were pure in dealing with you. Paul says, who I am, it's known to God. My prayer is that it's, it's known to you. Then he says, we're not commending ourselves to you again. Paul is understanding contextually something about the church of Corinth. We, we don't write commendations. Let me explain what that means. The Corinthians were used to people like the sophists. These were philosophers that, that pretty much waxed eloquently. They would stand up, and they wouldn't even be talking about nothing. They wouldn't be talking about nothing that's any benefit to you. But they would stand up, and their letter of commendation, their introduction to you, was talking about how great they were. So they would stand up and say, I am philosopher X, Y, and Z, and I'm smarter than you and your mama. Uh-huh, I look better than you. 
my hair is laid better than yours, listen to me. Paul says, we ain't writing no, we ain't writing no commendations to you. He says, he says, but we're writing so that you can have reason to boast about us. People were making fun of Paul and saying that Paul was not who he was because he did not look like he should be an apostle. See, you got to see the Paul that I think the Bible portrays. We oftentimes think of the Apostle Paul, and we think of pictures that we see in museums. We see a dude who has a long beard that's gray. He's a stately-looking gentleman. His clothes are pressed. His hair looks a little nice. He ain't jacked up looking. But, but if we're going to be true to what we know happens to Paul, Paul would have more than likely walked like this because his legs would have been beat on so much. Paul would have been standing before people missing teeth. Paul would have sometimes showed up on the scene with blood on his clothes from being beaten the night before. Paul. Paul did not look like an apostle. And so some of these people were saying, Paul's not an apostle because he suffers too badly. He says, he says, he, he doesn't look like an apostle because he has broken bones. He has scars or, or he, he doesn't feel like he fits this apostleship. Paul says that this is actually one of the reasons why you can know that I'm real. Because my motives were never for you. They were for Jesus to the point where I could take the beating for him. Paul saying that these people were saying they were more Jewish than him. They were more spiritual. That's why chapter 12, he's going to talk about visions. He says, I want you to have reason to boast about me so that you can shut their mouths. Paul is pointing to his character which is pointing to his apostleship, which is pointing back to the gospel. See, we don't get this in our self-depreciating culture here. But Paul understands that if the people that he has shared the gospel with cannot vouch for him, it hurts his ability to continue the gospel moving forward. If people that you are trying to reach cannot at the very least say they like you, if people that you are trying to share the gospel with cannot at the very least say you got a good heart, there's a problem with that. It's, it's so many mean Christians here that not, not necessarily here. I know this is not, you know, we, we, we epiphany, so that's not us here. But there are so many people in the body of Christ that, that people just don't like being around. People would rather not sit next to you in the lunchroom. People would, never, would go the other way when they see you coming. Paul says, I need you to vouch for me so that the gospel can move forward. Your neighbors, your co-workers, your family, some of the reason why they won't get saved is because they know you. They, 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 they know that there is a disconnect bef- between what you say and what you do. Paul says, I'm giving you reason to boast about me, my character, something that you cannot see, my heart, so that you can shut the mouth of those who boast about themselves. Want you to vouch for me. Then he goes on, shows us that this motivation of fear or accountability to Jesus, that can motivate you, should motivate you, ought to motivate you. But then he shows that there is another motivation, that the love of Christ should motivate you. Let's look at the text. He says, for if we are beside ourselves, the word there is, me. If I am out of my mind, that's literally what it means. 
If what I say to you, Corinth, makes me sound stupid, then it's for God. I wish you could have seen Paul in Acts chapter 17 as he presented the gospel in a very beautiful way and how little of a response it got. That's why he says again in 1 Corinthians, because the next chapter talks about him going there. He says, when I came to you, I chose to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Paul says, if what I say to you makes me sound stupid, it ain't even for you or me, it's for God. Paul understands that the gospel that he preaches and proclaims is nonsensical. The very fact that God would reach down to humanity through his son Jesus, die for people not who deserved it, but people who did not deserve it, so that people who could care less about him can have relation. Don't, don't you understand that that gospel offends Muslims in this city? Don't you understand that it is offensive for someone to be told that you are on your way to hell? I know that's not a popular thing to say nowadays. Hell is very real. Do you know that the gospel is going to make people mad? And Paul says, if I am out of my mind for what I say, it's for God. I wish there were four people that were willing to say, I will be out of my mind for God. We done got too much education and we know too much stuff. We done read too many books. We done got some money. We done got some granite on our floors and granite on the toilet seats and granite on the walls and gold all over the place that we are too good to now look stupid for God. I wish there were some people who said that I am willing to be called out of my mind for the gospel. Oh, preacher, but you don't understand the culture that he was preaching in. The culture that he was preaching in is a lot more messed up than the culture we live in now. And the message of Jesus has always been exclusive. Jesus ain't never stepped back and say that I'm Lord under some Lord, but he said, I am Lord of Lords. Wish you can understand what that means. He's, that's a smack against the emperor who thought he was God. He says, I am Lord even over this idiot. The gospel that we believe. The gospel that we are called and entrusted to give makes no sense to people. And understand that some people will think you are stupid. Paul says, if I'm out of my mind, it's not even for me. It's, 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 it's for God. That's my reasonable sacrifice is to, to be out of my mind for God. He says, but then if I'm in my mind, or if I'm in our right mind, it's for you. Paul is making a principle here. He's saying that whatever I say, it's either to God or it's to you. Whatever I do, it's to appease the vertical and to edify the horizontal. If I sound stupid, it's because I march to a different drummer the one who watches me. But if I sound like I make sense to you, it's for you. Which means that in this equation of gospel presentation, our motivations don't even come to the forefront. It means that, that we're marching really for two things. We're marching for God and we're marching for people. We're marching because God tells us to and because Christ has died for us, and we're marching because people are in a damned state. 
We're marching because God wants the gospel proclaimed, and, and he gets honor in that. Listen, some of y'all think God won't show up when his word is preached? Stand up and proclaim the word of Jesus and as watch God not show up. We proclaim for him, but we tell it for you. Paul says, why is this the case? He says, for the love of Christ controls us. This idea of control is an interesting one because it points to an inner and an outer control. It points to constraint. In other words, it keeps you here, holds you together. But then it points to restraint. It sets limits and boundaries and parameters. He says, the love of Christ holds me together and keeps me in line. But this love of Christ is not a love that I pour out to him. It's not love that's directed towards him, but it's love that he shows us. He says, I do this for God and for people because the love of Christ is my motivation. How does he explain the love of Christ? He says, we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Now, I know some of y'all saying, well, that points to universalism, and it doesn't, because he says, and he died for all, that those who might live may no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for their sake and was raised. Paul says, this example of God sending his son Jesus to die for us meant that the life I live is in gratitude to him. Wish you knew the story of Eddie Rickenbacker. Just drive down 95 on your way to Florida to Key Biscayne. Some of you been there before. And you, until a few years ago, would have seen a man who stood out there feeding seagulls with shrimp. People would look at this man and say, this man is weird. He must be crazy. He must be out of his mind because without fail, every Friday, he found himself in the same place feeding seagulls. Turns out that Brother Eddie here was a hero in World War I. And that one day while flying a plane across the Pacific, it crashed. Hear the story of Eddie. Eddie says that him and seven other crewmen in the water were able to crawl into a life raft. They sat there on that raft for several days, not eating or drinking anything. And he looks over and says, this is about to be it. God, if you're out there, help me. He says that as he's sitting there, he feels something on his cap as the sun is beating down on his neck and every ounce of energy is leaving him with every wave that throws the raft. He reaches up and grabs this seagull. He takes this seagull and he plucks the feathers from the seagull and and him and his crew are now able to eat a meal and able to use the entrails of the seagull to be able to fish. You later find out that they survived using that method for 24 days. So now if you go stand on the side, on the pier of Key Biscayne, every Friday you see this man out here feeding the seagulls. One day someone walked up closely to him and they can see him fish feeding these seagulls. And as he's throwing out shrimp to the seagulls, about every third shrimp, you would hear him say, thank you. Thank you. Someone says to him, Eddie, why are you saying thank you while feeding the seagulls? He says, because when something dies for you, you say thank you with a heart of gratitude. Paul says, I understand that someone has died for me. 
I understand that Jesus, the innocent one, has gone to the cross on my behalf. I should have been hanging on that cross, but rather Jesus took my burden on my behalf. And as he hung on that cross, God poured out his holy wrath on him. And because he died and was raised, I live a life of gratitude. Paul says, while the fear of the Lord motivates you, the love of Christ pushes you to your knees. Not enough to serve out of fear and, and, and fear that there is going to be a punishment, but the love that he has lavished on you ought to be the thing that motivates you to move out to people. The fact that Christ has shown you and me and us love should motivate us to say, I want people to understand that love. So he says, this love controls me. This love is a motivation for me. But finally and thirdly, his story motivates. By his story, I mean the story of Christ. Paul says, from now on, Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we do such, we do thus no longer. What he's saying is here. We used to look at people and evaluate them and sum them up by what we saw. Because of the fact that Christ died for all, therefore all have dead, I no longer do it. Let me, let, me, let me see if I can walk it this way. We, we as people do not learn information in a vacuum. We don't. We don't. We look at people and we make decisions about people based on what we see. We do it every day. Do you know that, that race was a sociological construct that was used to, to justify superiority of one and inferiority of another? And do, do you know that that system still affects how we see things today? Let me show you how. When a person speaks Ebonics, then he is ignorant to some people. When a person speaks proper, then he is somebody. When a man has on a suit, then he means something more than the one who doesn't. When a person's skin is lighter, then we say this about him. But when a person's skin is darker, we say that about him. We, we, we evaluate and sum people up by what we see. Doesn't mean that these categories don't exist. Paul says, because I understand that Christ dying meant all was dead, I only see two categories. He says, I only see living and I see walking dead. I know you watch the show. Don't act like you're too safe to get with me here. Look at that show there. You see a few people that are living. They're hiding. They're running. They have life. But then you see some other people that walk around like they're living. You see these people and they're putrefied and stink. You see these people and they're causing harm to other people. You see these people and they smell terribly. Paul says, I only see living and I see walking dead. Let, let, let me drive and park right in front of 17th and Diamond here. This means for your family members that are not saved, they are walking dead. This means you cannot be mad when they are doing what the walking dead does, which is stink like decay. When your mama does not know Jesus Christ, she is walking dead. When your employer does not know Jesus Christ, he is walking dead. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you are walking dead, Paul says, because Christ has died, everyone is dead. And I only see two categories here, living and dead. This means that a white person can proclaim the gospel to a black person. 
Why? Because there are two categories. There's living and there's dead. This means that a black person can proclaim the gospel to a white person. I don't care about the cultural sociological things because there is living and there is dead and there is a gospel to revive the living dead. The gospel functions as an equalizer. It says that everybody is equal, not just because of some inherent, you know, inherent value, but all of us are in need of grace. Paul says, we don't regard anybody by what we see anymore. We regard by what we know. They're either living or they're dead. And that's your family. That's, that's your kids. That's your mom and them. That's, that's people who you admire, living dead. Paul says, we used to regard Jesus as just a, a human, but we don't do that no more because we know what he really is. So he says, therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Because we have died, because we are in Christ, in meaning, in association with, in relationship to, any man who is in a relationship with Jesus Christ, the old you is dead. Which means that that the guilt that you feel, you don't need to feel because it's dead. It means that that you're in Christ and there is a new you that stands before God that is cloaked in the blood of Christ. Paul says, any man who's a new creation, old has passed away, all things have become new. Then he points to the God part of the story. He says, all that I'm saying to you, all this is from God. It's not something that I made up. It's not something that I Wikipedia'd and wrote a paper about. You know, some of y'all done got F's because you done wikipedia something and wrote a paper about it. Paul says, all this is from God, whom through Christ. I love this here, because he's saying that he's not doing the reconciling in any other way. It ain't about what you thought you brought to the table. It ain't about your perceived goodness in your heart. He says he's reconciling the world to himself through one means, Jesus Christ. He says, whom through Christ, reconciled us to himself. We're going to jump down to 19 and come back to that part of 18. He says, that is Christ, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. So he says, God has reconciled us and he's reconciling the world. We've reached a theologically rich term here. And it's a term, to be quite honest, I struggle with at times because we as humans misuse it. Reconciliation does not mean bringing two opposite or opposing sides together. That's not what it means. Because I'm from Chicago. Chicago was the land of gangs, much like LA. If you brought one gang together and brought the other gang together and something did not happen, you had a room full of dead gangbangers. Paul says reconciliation, which this term literally means to bring together two opposing sides by removing the hostility between the two. Paul says, it is through Christ that God reconciled us. Let's let's talk about this This mean. God has beef with us. Yes, he does. Why? It's not not just because he's jealous of you or he wants what you got, but, but it's because everything about us and you, me and you, everything about us goes against what he wants. Everything. Something in us, God can say go up, and because we knew he said go up, we're going to go down. There's beef that exists between humanity and God. But God says, this is why Paul says he does this by not counting our trespasses against us. 
Because in Jesus Christ, when Jesus put on flesh, God poured our sin onto him. Yes, he did. And when he went to the cross, God put his anger and justice on Jesus' back. And it's through that means of his death, burial, and resurrection that God is reconciling the world to himself. He's dealt with the hostility. That's why Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 5, he says, he was chastised for our peace. That's not peace so you can have peace in your mind and you can sleep good. But that's saying that in order for there to be peace between two opposing parties, parties that got deep beef, deep hostility, that goes back to the beginning of time for humanity, he had to remove the hostility through Jesus Christ. God's part. He says, he says and get this, this is beautiful. God is the one doing it. The fact that, that God is the one that's doing it, that's reconciled you and me, is shout-worthy. That, that, that's enough to make you just throw it up right there and lose it. And then Paul says, not only has he, is he reconciled us to him, but he's reconciling the world to him. Which means that this act of reconciliation that you have and you excited about, you need to get excited about the next man who God wants to be reconciled to. That's why Paul says... He has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Ministry, oftentimes we think about ministry like there is doxa or there is hospitality. Ministry literally means service. He says he has given to us the service of reconciliation. (laughs) Paul is pointing to something that's really deep here. Aside from the prophets, the last time you saw God and man working closely together was in Genesis 2. It's when God brought animals to Adam and said, name it, and it'll be that name. God said, bring this. This is a lion. Adam said, this is a lion. He said, good. From henceforth, this will be called a lion. It will never be a bear. It will never be a snake. It's a lion because Adam said it. (laughs) Paul's saying, God is doing this massive work of bringing people to himself. But then he's given us the message of reconciliation to work with it. Which, which implies here, this is why he says this. He says, he says here, uh, uh, verse 20, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled. Ambassador is a person who represents a kingdom. Let me explain what I mean here. You go up to the UN, you're going to see a lot of ambassadors from other countries. It means they come from a country that they're from. They enter into a country that they're not from to represent the interests of the country that they are from. If the ambassador of Germany came here and began to act out of accordance with what Germany wants, when this ambassador goes home, he has to answer for that. Paul says, we are from a land that we don't even know. We ain't never been there. We ain't never seen it. But we are ambassadors of another world, which means that our home is not here. I have a house in Germantown. It means that my home is not Germantown. I was born and raised in Chicago. It means that my home is not Chicago. It means that I live in Philadelphia. We live in Philadelphia or or New Jersey and some other places that, that our home is not there. That's temporary because we are here as an ambassador on assignment to represent the interest of the kingdom. Paul says that is why when we open our mouths, he is making his appeal through us. I'm going to say it and I'm done. Paul's saying that when I speak, 
I don't even speak on my behalf anymore. When I speak as an ambassador, I am speaking on the behalf of the kingdom that I am from. That means every word I say has power behind it because of the kingdom that I am from. When you open your mouth and tell people about Jesus Christ, I don't care how stupid it sounds to you or how nonsensical it is or scandalous it feels or feeling like you're imposing on someone else. When you tell someone that you are a sinner and Christ has died for your sins and been raised from the dead, believe, turn and trust it. You are speaking the word of God and he is through your mouth making an appeal, which means that when your mouth is open about that, he is speaking. But when your mouth is closed, he is not. If our job as ambassadors is to speak it, every time we feel that urge from the Holy Ghost to speak it and we don't, that's an appeal that's not being made. That means when we sit next to the person on the train, that means when we're in the barbershop in the chair, every time we don't open our mouths about it, the word of God is not making the appeal. Paul says, I am an ambassador of the kingdom of God, and I speak and say, be reconciled to God. Here it is. Paul is motivated by the story of Christ. He's motivated by the gospel. He's motivated by what that means. And he says, I ain't going to keep my mouth shut about it. I'm going to tell any and every person that's living and breathing that there is a Savior who has died for you. There is a Savior who is calling you to turn. There is a Savior that has made a way for you to have relationship with God through his death, burial, and resurrection. The appeal is made. Saints, beloved, are you making an appeal? Or are we so busy worried about method and mold that we never get to message? I hear somebody saying, but I'm scared to tell somebody about Jesus. Wish you saw the people in Acts when it got turned up on them. They were in a prayer meeting and they said, God, we know you sent us for this. Your spirit is here. It seals us. Yeah, but your spirit is here to be a witness. Give us boldness. And the text says that the room shook and the ghost fell down and Ketz was filled with the spirit. Here it is. If you're scared to tell people about Jesus, understandable. Ask God for boldness. Ask him to give you the words to say. When you're praying for open doors, based on Colossians 4, an open door is if somebody speaks to you beyond hello. That's an open door. It ain't because they say, tell me what you believe. Now, sometimes that happens, but, but it's when God says, that person's talking to you, then your job then is to pray God, open up a door for me to lead the conversation to Jesus Christ so that when I stand before you, I'm not sitting there talking about, Lord, I could have, should have, would have, but I didn't. Because you answered the call to make the appeal. And there are always three responses, always. According to the scriptures, every time in Acts you saw a presentation, people either said, sign me up, I'm ready to go, I believe you. Or they said, I want to hear more, so talk to me more. Then that means you need to know your Bible, to talk to them more, to understand their heart, their motives, to understand where they're coming from, to, to hear more. And then there's no. I don't want to hear it. Your job ain't to make any of them three happen. Your job is simply to throw it out there 
and let it fall on the heart. Jesus says there are four types of soil. There's the soil that rejects it. There are those that it gets squashed out. There are those that it get there and then stuff starts happening and it dies. But then there are those who hear it, believe it, receive it. And they produce fruit 30, 60 to 100 times. It's not our job to produce the fruit. Our job is to be the sower that throws the seed. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, what a joy and a privilege it is to know you. Father, we thank you that uh, our prayers don't hit the ceiling and bounce to our pockets because of the fact that we have access to you and we can come confidently before you because of Jesus. And we thank you for that, Father. And I pray, Lord God, even for myself, struggles with the same thing, Lord, that you would use me, that you would use us. We're saying, Lord, we're an open vessel to be used by you and that our motivations in being used by you would be pointing upward towards you. But now, God, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, Lord, I'm conscious of the fact that there are some in the room, Lord God, that fit that description of the walking dead. They may be in church because they thought it was a novel thing to do. Maybe someone drug them. Maybe they heard the noise. But they've never placed their faith in you. And so, Father, I pray that you would touch hearts as we begin to speak the gospel to them. If you're sitting here today and you know that I was talking to you in the sense that you know you are the one that is the walking dead. You've never placed your faith in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you something. God loved you so much that he sent Jesus Christ to die in your place, a death that was for you and me. He sent Jesus Christ to die for us. Jesus died, and he was raised from the dead. God says that any man who turns from their sin and places their confidence in Christ is saved. If that's you and you know you've never done that, can you slip your hand up? I just want to see who you are. Don't be afraid. I want to see who you are. We've got some people here that want to speak to you, not to bust you out or anything. They just want to help you understand the gospel, help you understand the greatest news you'll ever hear. If that's you, slip your hand up.